parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. I'm your host, Kinetic, also known as Nick. This week, Marco's back to join us. How are you doing today, Marco? Pretty good, thanks. A uh, few interesting things in the news here. One is uh, EA doing some weird stuff on Twitter, uh, reported by Kotaku. There was uh, one tweet with, from the Titanfall account that was referencing an IGN link that said uh, the link was a review of Call of Duty, saying one is mostly slow and plotting, while the other is. Uh, well, the other's frantic precision is electrifying. You decide. Hashtag make the right call. The odd and embarrassing thing about this is the Titanfall account is almost certainly controlled by Electronic Arts. Sort of a response to that, the official Respawn account itself said, for the record, Respawn is the, at Respawn is the official voice of Respawn Studio. We have nothing but respect and love for our fellow devs. So this is, uh, clearly there is a bit of a disconnect and Respawn was, you know, not exactly happy about the foot that, uh, the Titanfall account, Twitter account was putting forward. Um, and the embarrassment for EA doesn't exactly stop there because there was also a, uh, probably misguided marketing attempt for Battlefield 1. Where they were pointing out, they, they were putting out posts on the official Battlefield account, things like, uh, your squad got big, big plans for the weekend and trying to get the hashtag just WW1 things. And with that one, it was attached to a, uh, an image of a World War One era dirigible on fire in the background with a soldier pointing a pistol. And some people were taking offense to making flippant remarks about World War One, which is also sometimes referred to as, you know, the Great War, the war to end all wars, or the seminal tragedy because of just how horrible it was. I look at this and I see examples of just how difficult it is to keep everybody tied together. Uh, Marco, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, um, you know, a lot of uh, major publishers, um, these tweets aren't necessarily coming directly from them too. Uh, they hire PR um, companies mm. and other marketing companies that are third party that, you know, have these ideas and, you know, start doing things. Sometimes the approval process isn't really set. So a lot of times, you know, when you hire you know, third party PR marketing, you can have them doing something like this, um, which I, I, I'm kind of thinking might be the case uh, in this scenario. Um, whether it is or not, you know, it's first, you know, with the um, Titanfall and uh, Call of Duty uh, comparison and um, generally never a good idea to go out and slander another game or developer yeah. or anything like that, right? You know, you... <laughs> um, what are you talking about? We're coming from the age where we saw Genesis <laughs> does what Nintendo don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, when, when, yeah, I don't know. On top of which, there's also the general rule of thumb that if your number 
two, you're free to take shots at number one. If you're number one, don't give number two any attention at all. Yeah, that's another thing. You know, EA, uh, they, they kind of get treated a little mis, uh, you know, unfairly in, in the industry is, uh, in my opinion as well. Um, and regarding the battlefield ones, they, they're not the smartest tweets. That's for sure. But, um, I, I kind of don't understand, um, the level of outrage that some people had about them. Um, one in particular wasn't that bad in my opinion when it just talked about the uniforms and them being like sharply dressed or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, not the smartest, like I said, but it's not like the most, like the worst thing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one about, you know, the flamethrower that you have, that one weekend goals when you're too hot for the club, fire flamethrower. It's not exactly clear what's in the image. Yeah. Um, you know, that one probably not so good, but, um, again, you know, it's, very bad marketing attempt, but, um, I've seen worse, uh, <laughs> and it's not, uh, it wasn't the most offensive thing to me. I, I, I wonder, you know, if the people that are offended by these, you know, why they're, they're offended. I mean, mm. I doubt, I doubt anyone from this, from that era is playing these games right now or on Twitter. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, like I get it. Like I said, you know, they're not the the smartest things, but I think the level of backlash about them is is a little unreasonable. Yeah, sometimes sometimes there are little disconnects like that, little uh, misunderstandings, both on the on the side uh, on in this case the sort of I don't know advertiser publicist is what you would mm-hmm. call the Twitter account and yeah. the audience. I mean, I do think that it's in a I, I more or less agree with you. It's inappropriate to make, you know, weird, flippant, snide remarks about a war like World War One. But at the same time, I also remember when, what was it, Battlefield Vietnam came out and people were complaining about making a game out of when, you know, soldiers watched their buddies dying in the mud or something like mm-hmm. I remember at that time thinking, toy soldiers have been around for a really, really long time. Kids have played war for a really long time. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure I buy into the Battlefield Vietnam as a disgrace thing. Unless, of course, I haven't played the game. If somewhere in the game or there was something about the conflict that was particularly charged. Not really. I played 1943 and... um... There was no single player campaign, so there was no, nothing to like really get you into the, like, really put you in those moments, um, mm-hmm. you know, from the war. It was all multiplayer, so there, there wasn't anything that, like you said, was really charged in it that, you know, yeah. I mean, they had the weapons, you know, from them. They had flamethrowers as well and things like that. People were kind of, uh, some people didn't like that. But, um, you know, there, there are things that were there. You know, it was, it was accurate for the most part. Yeah. And so to illustrate my point about a particularly charged thing, you probably would not ever want to make an asymmetrical multiplayer shooter based on military campaigns against Native Americans. Mm-hmm. That would just be in poor taste. World War One is one of those conflicts that, while it was fought by mostly conventional rules it was also a moment of just great horror and you could even say butchery because the technology was advancing faster than the tactics did which is mm-hmm. what led to trench warfare and just a horrible slog and me- and chemical weapons and all of this horrible stuff it was the war that showed us how bad things could be 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's why, you know, you, the, the, I think World War One is probably that dividing line about how far you would want to take fantastical war mm-hmm. and, and gamifying it or turning it into a toy or something like that. That, that's, it's still generally followed conventional rules. The conventional rules at the time were outdated. And mm-hmm. they've been updated since then, and nowadays it would not be following conventional rules. But uh, yeah, that's um, that's how I see it. Um, I think there's also some disconnect with the receiving audience, where some people will take a reasonable amount of offense from these Battlefield One tweets, mm-hmm. and some who will. There, there's some who are just going to be offended for the sake of getting offended. I'm not, I'm not addressing those, but there are also some people who will say, well, what's the big deal? It's just a thing. It's history. Like, don't, it, they, they may not see that dividing line that I see. I think that's really, you know, like when, when a company is told to market to a certain demographic, you know, I think that's where this comes from as well. Um, they're probably targeting yeah, male, really 18, male 18 to 35, which is the, the biggest uh, demographic <laughs> for male shooters or, or, you know, like console shooters, right? So the company's thinking like, okay, we're going to target these people. Let's do things on social media. Let's poke fun. Let's make memes, things like that that people like, hashtags, funny hashtags. But they're not really considering, you know, um, what that that might offend people. And and uh, I think some of it might also be a generational thing where it's now just far enough away. It is just removed enough from most living memory that mm-hmm. it becomes this distant thing and people think about it in a more abstract way. Right. And so you've got people writing it who think about it abstractly. You've got and and there's some people who I think appropriately take an appropriate level of offense to it. And there's mm-hmm. people who also think about it abstractly, receiving it and then wondering why people are taking offense to it. And like I said, there's also some people who are taking in, in I think are taking an inappropriate amount of offense to it. But again, I'm not really including that in this calculation here. What I see is that when the people who are taking who who are defending it they interact with the people taking a reasonable amount of offense and are almost pushing them to hold the hold their stance define themselves in a way that it can border on unreasonable you know it, mm. it's it's a closed-mindedness to that other point of view that draws out a greater i don't know vitriol from the other side mm-hmm. well that's my two cents on that one <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not much to say about them. Yeah. I, you know, they're, they were in poor taste, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but, you know, are, I didn't think they were as egregious as, um, the internet's yeah. making things out to be. Um, I, I mean, I get it. Like I said, the Battlefield ones, they're not good. Um, you know, I, I don't agree with them at all, but I didn't necessarily take as much offense to them as, it's, as other it's, people it's, did. It's not a torch and pitchfork kind of thing. <laughs> Right. But, right. uh, yeah, it also, it also just kind of sheds a little light on, you know, I, I didn't even consider the whole, you know, they, they could be a third party marketing firm. Yeah. And, and that kind of thing. Most likely it is. And which, which reminds me of something I'm, I'm gonna, oh God, this guy's name is really hard to pronounce. He posts on Game of Sutra all the time. Ramen, uh, Shokrazade, Shokrazade. 
S-H-O-K-R-I-Z-A-D-E. I apologize if I mangled that. If someone knows how to pronounce it, feel free to explain it to me. I I read Game of Sutra. He posts on it a lot, so I see him all the time. Um, but one of his articles or blogs or whatever was talking about how he was working on, I don't know, a World of Tanks thing or something like that. But because he was doing it in an Eastern European or Russian studio mentality he could have dictatorial power which meant he was able to get a good product out under budget and ahead of schedule whereas western developers everybody has to approve everything (laughs) and there's all this like everyone has buy-in on stuff and i'm thinking that some of that might just be because you know some studios have multiple projects going on and it's a lot harder to have dictatorial power over things, particularly on the publisher side. Publishers have to work with multiple people. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we have a marketing thing that if someone were wielding that kind of dictatorial power over it, probably could have stopped. But at the same time, the size of it makes it really, like I said, really difficult to have that kind of oversight and authority over the marketing. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying a publisher, I mean, I still believe a publisher should be responsible for what a third party firm puts out. Um, but, you know, maybe they were in this case, maybe someone did approve it. Um, but to me, it looks like, you know, the case of a third party, um, PR firm or marketing firm doing these things because they're, they seem a little out of touch from what yeah. uh, a publisher or developer would do themselves. Yeah. Okay, that was issue one. Issue two. Um, two Tribes Games. Not exactly a household name. And not, not associated with the Tribe Games, even. Uh, decided that, uh, they are working on a game. Uh, what was the name of that one? Reeve? Rive? R-I-V-E. The pronunciation is unclear. I believe by normal linguistic rules that would be Rive. Um, mm-hmm have decided that that's going to be their final game and before they've even released it they they've said that they're going to be they're not they're not developing anymore after that um this was another thing reported on Game of Sutra uh one of the most interesting uh segments of the write up they had uh two tribes set out to make a oh I'm sorry I need, I should set this up um they were discussing an earlier game that they tried to make was it two tribes set up uh, um I'm sorry. Let me set the stage here. <laughs> they had some uh, other games with some moderate success, but um, they didn't have enough success to maintain the level of uh, production that they'd had before. So they wanted to try to uh, lay off some people, as you know, sometimes you have to do, um, and streamline things and try to move forward from there. Uh, now back to the article, as I tried to set up before in my, you know, clumsy, ham-fisted way. Two tribes set out to make a smaller game with a smaller team, hoping this would allow them to increase flexibility and the pace of iterations. Quote, apparently it's not in our DNA to make games quickly. And in the end, it took about two and a half years to complete Rive. Said by uh, uh, Van Ginkle from Two Tribes Games. Uh, During that time, we noticed uh, that we weren't in tune with the latest developments anymore. Van Gingle mentions that uh, 
a developer he knows who has created an Android clicker game that's feeding people into his Twitch stream, where he's live-streaming development of his next game and living off the donations he gets from viewers. He's having a blast and is very successful, says uh, Van Ginkle. But I don't like clicker games. I don't, I, I don't get Twitch. And live-streaming my every move feels weird to me. In short, we don't see the options anymore, he says. That means... It is. It was time to move on. Um, this seems like a, a, a almost a canary in the mind moment, where the definition of what it is to be a small game developer may have changed dramatically, where certain things are going to cost a certain amount of money to get you going, and so we've got this guy who's, you know, live streaming and getting donations for development of a clicker game, which is, you know, those idle games or uh, kind of a new genre, and an existing studio which has an older mentality just doesn't understand how to make their business work anymore in the in the current environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just goes to show, you know, like making games now can be easy. There's a lot of tools out there, but making successful games is <laughs> really hard work, especially oh, yeah. in the current market. Um, you can have the best game out there, but if you can't get it in front of people or you can't raise awareness of it, like, unfortunately, it's not going to do anything because there's so many people making games now um, and all these big publishers that it's it's just really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There, there, there's so many people out there who continue to have the impression, it's like, I'll just make a really awesome product and people will come to it. It's like, I'm I'm... Really sorry, that's not how it works. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate too. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, I'm not saying that you know um, a lot of the games out there that are successful aren't good, but um, you know, you have to have a good product to start, but you also have to find users, get users into it, try to get featured somewhere, um, raise awareness of your game, or else you know, there's so many other games out there that you're you're never going to be found. Yeah, and uh, and that's why some of the you know live streaming development, uh, mm-hmm. all of those things, it also serves. It serves. Uh, I, I, if you're up for it, it seems to be a massive boon for developers because you can get donations through mm-hmm. it, and it increases your uh, visibility. It increases the engagement from some of your users. You're going to have uh, a player base that is already hardcore invested in you before you're even released. Right. Um, or before, I mean, if you do one of those, uh, a Steam early release thing, you know, I mean, I I find some of that weird. It's like, okay, you're selling the game, but it's not released. I mean, for for the love of God, Goddess and Goddess Wars are in early release right now, and they're probably never going to get a full official release on Steam. And it's been, what, two years? <laughs> but... But uh, coming back to uh, to this, I they also uh, pointed out that not feeling bound to make commercial sense or not feeling bound to have this make enough money to fund the next game has been somewhat liberating to them. So they mm-hmm. they feel they they can just make the decisions that they want to make, and it's not that they're going to just release it and disappear. They have plans to support it after release, but you know, it makes sense to me that 
you know, they, they, they see sort of some of the signs on the wall that, that the way they want to do things just isn't viable anymore. So they just want to go out with what they want to go out with and, and more power to mm-hmm. them for that. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I'm, it's, it's kind of sad, you know, but at least they recognize, um, you know, that things are changing and that they can't do the things that they use the way they used to. So they're just deciding to get out. Um, and they're, they're fortunate that they're a small enough developer to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, some large publishers or large developers, they're kind of locked into continuing to try, um, yeah. even though they may not be successful. So they'll keep trying and trying and putting themselves more in the hole and more in the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and just being, you know, such a, much more like a much worse situation. You, you know, start throwing the, good money end. after bad because <clears throat> right. you're, you're too, you're too committed to it. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's fortunate for them as well. Um, it's interesting that, you know, they recognized it and decided to just, you know, shut it down. Um, it's, I know it must be hard. That must've been a really hard decision for them, but, oh, yeah. um, because when it comes like, to any of this stuff, like we like we say all the time, it's like just about everybody in the industry wants to make good games and make people happy. You mm-hmm. get invested in what you're working on, so absolutely, I'm certain this was a very difficult decision to make. Yeah, it had to be a heartbreaker for sure. Um, but it seems like they're they accept the decision that they made now. You know, they're happy with it and they're going to move on and do other things. So you know, um, I'm I'm happy for them. You know. Yeah. Uh, it, it sucks that they, you know, have to shut down, but it seems like they realize, you know, they recognize why and, uh, they're focused on moving forward. So, you know, hopefully, you know, they'll have success in whatever they do next. Yep. Uh, in fact, uh, Van Kinkle addressed that. I am just slaying that pronunciation here. It's <laughs> Ginkle, G-I-N-K-E-L. I think I've pronounced it about four different ways so far. <laughs> um, Talking about the decision to move on from games, uh, he seemed pretty optimistic. He said, quote, after 16 years of making video games, I'm looking forward to seeing what else is out there, what else I'll be able to achieve in perhaps a totally different setting and capacity. I'm embracing the fact that I don't know where I'm headed, but I want to make the best informed decision. So the first course of action is to literally travel the world. I'm very much looking forward to that. Um on top of which there was some advice to impart to new developers, quote, stay healthy, don't fall into the trap of thinking it's cool or necessary to work until you run out of steam. I know it's better to be smart about where you spend your time and resources than to just throw time at your project and hope for the best. And this realization came the hard way. After several herniated discs and way too much stress, healthy people make better games. Trust me. (laughs) Which is true. Yes. I mean, it's really true. And I mean, I've talked about Alex St. John, who would seem to disagree with that, but I, you know, that's a whole nother topic. You know, <laughs> I, I am, I'm happy that, I mean, here, here's an example. Here's an example. There, there are generational shifts that happen in the industry, which is another thing that makes this article kind of a, a fascinating little bellwether or microcosm mm-hmm. where at first, there was just like, you have to work hard. We have to get this out on time. The games were, you know, way back when the eighties games were a lot smaller and you could make them much more quickly, much more cheaply. That mentality, the, it, it, it becomes an issue when you're talking about scaling up. When you have a larger production, 
you have to have more planning and you can't just throw hours and effort at it to make it work. You know, what, what do you think a Hollywood movie is going to come out and be good without a reasonable pre-production planning and budgeting? You know, um, I mean, I've, I've gone on record with Judge Greg saying that we both love the 13th Warrior and that thing went crazy over budget, but that's kind of a, a magical exception. <laughs> I enjoy um, that movie as well, though. Actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> On a <Good>. side note, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Um, the 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 book behind it uh, uh, on a tangent. The book behind it, um, Eaters of the Dead, is actually pretty good too, and surprisingly not that difficult to read. The the opening third is a little dry, but you know it doesn't really matter too much. Um, yeah, that's uh, I, I I just you know I hope the best for these guys. They they um. Uh, uh, going back to the, the sort of generational thing. Um, this here, are, uh, this appears to be people who have learned, um, two sort of generational lessons. One is, you know, learning that just throwing hours at a problem to make it go away is not the right way to go. Cool. They've also learned that, hey, look, the nature of the market that we're in is changing. And that's actually one of the magical things about the games industry is it's always changing. I mean, it, it bears almost no resemblance to what it was five years ago and then almost no resemblance to what it was 10 years ago. It's right. crazy. And especially, especially with mobile, mobile changes oh, yeah. every, you know, every six months to a year, basically. Yeah. yeah you got another, uh, you got another, uh, iOS release with a new, you know, bell and whistle that, that we have to start, uh, incorporating into our games or there's some mm -hmm. new social platform that that you want to try to take advantage of or there's some new technology that you want to you know it's becoming standardized for the industry i mean yeah it's stuff moves all over the place you're freaking 3d touching or you know you can go back farther and you got the uh, uh, uh gps your accelerometers your touch screens your multi-touch mm -hmm. you know? every time something like that happens Mobile adapts to try to take the best advantage of it. Right. So it's it's definitely a hard market. I mean, it's an expanding market and it's very lucrative. Um, but you have to be able to adapt to it quickly um, and you know do it well, or else it's it's you're never going to survive. So let me ask you a question about this. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there will come a time when the size and inertia of the mobile market Games and apps in general will get to the point where that sort of rapid evolution and changing uh, is no longer workable. Mm. It's a weird and abstract question, I know, but I think I think that's uh, actually a very important question for us to ask ourselves to if we're going to try to be forward thinking. I'm going to say no. Because I think that developers are going to have no choice but to find a way to adapt. So I think whatever tools you're using for development or your iteration process or, or whatever it is, is going to have to adapt to, to the changes in the market. Um, I, I can, I mean, I see what you're saying. Um, and it's, uh, it's going to get harder and harder, but, um, with the size of the market and everything and, companies wanting to stay in this in this market and expand in it um i think they're going to come up with ways to to adapt faster mm. probably another proprietary third party layer of technology to make it so that 
They they adapt Unity engines to new technologies quicker than you can, right? Or something, which <laughs> right. which just makes everything more brittle, and then and then every everybody's going to be tempted to throw crazy hours at a problem to make it go away, and mm-hmm. and the cycle perpetuates itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it if if the mobile market wasn't as big as it, it is and it's still expanding, um. I would I would say you know a lot of people would drop off because they just can't keep up, but the way it's going, I think companies are going to have to try to find some way to adapt, and and they will. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if there if there's money to be made, people will figure out how to do it. Right. Okay. I think that covers that one pretty well. Issue three. This is one that I'm kind of jumping on you here. I just saw this uh, headline on Game of Sutra. Uh, after pulling out of the West, DNA doubles down on its Nintendo team-up. Um, just weeks ago, DNA seemingly pulled out of the West entirely, shutting down its San Francisco studio. This week, it offered a presentation to investors that it does still plan to operate in the West, but will seek to do so through collaboration with external partners rather than trying to run its own development operations there. The company will also aim to be reallocating resources with a focus on the Nintendo partnership as it continues to try to uh, try and transition its business away from browser-based games toward native mobile games. This is kind of... Uh, this feels like it should be a more monumental moment than it, than it feels like. That sounds oddly redundant, but... I mean, DNA, Mobigay, I've written about Mobigay before. I... Uh, it, it it has speaking of very fast moving environments a few years ago it was a pretty big deal and yeah. their san francisco office had a pretty significant downsizing after the initial nintendo partner uh, uh pairing was announced uh, that was announced uh, i think they cut the san francisco office by like half i'm just remembering that off the top of my head that number could quite quite be quite significantly off but it was a significant uh, downsizing of the office, and now they say, okay, we're just going to uh, uh, get rid of that office entirely and go entirely with Nintendo. Um, this feels a little bit like the... If, if you look at how imbalanced the, purchase, the, the partnership was, it was something along the lines of uh, to, to get business ties with each, with each other, they had a mutual stock buy where... At, at an equal dollar value, it was something like DNA bought 5% of Nintendo and Nintendo bought 50% of DNA. And you look at it, it's like, this is an inherently unequal relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, it, it's almost like DNA is a little parasite on Nintendo now. <laughs> and that, that's a, that's a unintentionally negative way to, to, to phrase that, but I can't think of anything better at the moment. Um, they, they're clearly just grabbing on to Nintendo and writing for dear life and hoping that the, the wave will carry them through because, like I said, DNA was a pretty big deal. I mean, you might have heard of, uh, Blood Brothers was a, a, a really big game of theirs. Um, it even got a sequel. Um, Blood Brothers 2, yeah. <laughs> um, Marco, have you, have you looked at or dealt with DNA in any capacity? Um, I've looked into a few of their games, and um, I mean, in, in Japan, they were definitely huge. They had a lot of collectible card games out there that were really big. Um, oh, yeah. I had to do some research on one of their games recently. Um, 
that's a lot different than stuff they normally do. Well, it was a card game, but it was a lot different genre than what they normally do. Um, but it's, it's performing all right. It's, it's a Japanese only game, but it's mm. performing, uh, decently there. Um, that, you know, uh, uh, that actually brings something to mind because a lot of their money, yeah, came from, from Japanese sort of collectible card game type things. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, you go back then, I despised those games because of how horrible and cluttered their interfaces were. I just called them like <laughs> HTML5, you know, just clusterfucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, they, they were garbled and nonsensical and you have to like scroll through to find things. I'm like, I think I'm collecting things. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what they do, but yeah. for some reason, those games were super popular in Japan. They, they and they were very profitable, and people made boatloads of money on them. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. okay, they made money. More power to them. Fine, I'll just accept that as a given. The problem is, those games did not perform so great in the West. I right. think the best one that I saw was was it Transformers Legacy, which was also a DNA game. Yeah. Where it was, it was given a much more slick user interface and menu system. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause like I said, the old, the, the old ones were like HTML5 things. It's like the, the main menu scrolled like a web page and had links with underlined text like a web page. Yeah, with a lot of scrolling tickers. And yeah. Oh they were God. a mess. I agree. Um, those, those old Japanese card games were, I don't, understand how people played them uh chinese ones too like they're just as bad yeah um they have some of the most confusing interfaces i've ever seen um and then you get to the gameplay and it's just tap the screen to advance you're like right or what? I, 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 I don't understand what i'm supposed to be getting out of this experience right um uh, yeah it's it's pretty interesting how they were so complex but still made a lot of money i mean because personally, I didn't even want to spend the time to figure out what, where everything was <laughs> this in is, the this game. This is not you know? compelling. As opposed uh-huh. to, and I think transform the Transformers game was a pretty decent example of how to do the how to modify that for the West, if not correctly, at least much better. Because the user interface didn't really have any scrolling in it. Your menus were self-contained on your screen, you know, in a way that would make. If someone, if anyone out there listening doesn't understand what I mean about a scrolling menu, um. Literally, literally, it looked like a web page. It looked, it actually looked like an old, bad web page. With a lot of buttons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, you but, wouldn't, you wouldn't want your, your, you're playing a game, you hit pause and you have a web page from <laughs> 1997 pop up. Right. But uh, those ones didn't even really have gameplay. They were just, you tap your button to advance, keep collecting things. Collect things for the sake of collecting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. uh, again, going back to Transformers, it, it fixed that menu stuff up. It used a Western property. It had good art that would appeal to your Western audience. Um, and yeah, that one just felt a lot better. But the original point I was getting at here, when it comes to DNA with an office in the West and partnership with Nintendo, one of the criticisms that can be leveled against Nintendo is that they, and and not just Nintendo, but a number of, of Japanese game companies, is that they tend to be very Japan 
centric with their mindset. They make things for the Japanese market and pay very little attention to the Western or international markets, mm-hmm. which seems a little self-defeating if you think about it a certain way. I mean, hell, even Hollywood understands that better. You, you know, they put stuff in for the Chinese market mm-hmm. in the movies. It's like, okay, well, uh, I would describe it as pandering, but it works. So, I mean, at least they're yeah. doing that much. <laughs> um. And if DNA is retreating from a West, from having a Western studio, they actually had games that were controlled by this uh, office in San Francisco. The development was controlled by that office. They're, they say they want to work internationally, but they're retreating from having that influence internal to their own company and sort of within the auspices of a larger organization that can have those same criticisms levied against it. So I kind of, unless they're strictly retreating into Nintendo IP, you know, Super Mario Run, Animal Crossing, and Fire Emblem games, which do have proven international appeal, um, I'm not, it, it feels like there might be trouble ahead because of that. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I kind of disagree. Um, I think that uh, this is actually probably a good move for them. Um, looking at what they're working on that you just mentioned, Super Mario Run, Animal Crossing, and Fire Emblem. Um, Super Mario and Animal Crossing are, you know, pretty huge in the West. Um, you know, and hopefully they they try to capture you know that market as well. And, and instead of just focusing on the Japanese market, like you were saying, which a lot of Japanese developers do, but um, I don't think they're only focusing on Nintendo and retreating from the West. I think they're trying to strengthen their IP um, and still going to focus on a, on a global market. Um, and I think, you know, well, for any developer, if you had a partnership with Nintendo at this point, um, I would jump all over it too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just seeing the success of Pokemon Go and, all the buzz there is around Super Mario Run, which is honestly, like in my opinion, not that appealing looking of a game. Um, but I think it's something that's still going to be wildly successful. Um, so I think they're making a good decision here. Uh, and I think they're, they're going to be successful with it. And I think they're still going to be successful in a global market. Okay. So I, I see where you're getting at here, but mm-hmm. let, let me, let me pose this question to you. Mm-hmm. Is do you think DNA is going to continue to release their own games under their own banner internationally, or are they pretty much just going to support Nintendo titles? I think they're going to be Nintendo Mobile. <laughs> okay, so yeah. y- that sounds like they'll be successful because they're going to put themselves in a position for Nintendo to just completely absorb them. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. I don't disagree with that because that point of view is thoroughly consistent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, uh, um, so I guess my, like, my, con- my concern would be more along the lines of if they were going to try to continue to release their own DNA specific stuff. Like say they tried uh, to make a Blood yeah. Brothers 3. Right. Which in and of itself is actually a little bit like those old HTML5 type card collection games. That I mentioned, but it was presented in a way that there, there, it felt like there was more stuff going on. It felt more engaging to me, uh, a Western audience. 
um, if they were going to try to make a Blood Brothers 3, mm-hmm. and they had no Western offices left, mm-hmm. do you think that that would hurt uh, the presentation of the game and it's therefore its performance in Western markets? And we're not even going to take like uh, Western advertising stuff into account here. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, probably. Okay. I think you're absolutely right in the fact that, you know, Dina or DNA, sorry. Um, <laughs> no one knows how to say it. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're probably not going to be successful as an independent developer making their own games moving forward. But um, what I think they're going to do is just become absorbed by Nintendo and be one of their developers officially moving forward. And through that will be successful. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, all right. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, issue four, something that, uh, we talked about very briefly before, um, setting up this, uh, this recording was the, uh, the concept of VR and, and some of our experience with it. Uh, I believe that you have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have the impression that you've played more, more demos and stuff than I have because for me, I'll, to be completely honest, I played an Oculus Rift dev kit like within the first two weeks of when it came out for about three minutes. Uh huh. And you, you and actually then, have uh, more experience than me then. <laughs> oh my. So I haven't played um, any VR games myself at all. Um, okay. I just haven't taken the time to. But since it is something that's very relevant in the industry, I have been reading pretty much everything that I can about it and about the games and reviews on the games and things like that, because I think it's interesting um, to look into. So, ah. um, so the things so, I'll so. talk about regarding <laughs> VR are from what I've read um, and aren't necessarily about the games themselves, but just interesting things that I've um, you know thought about from reading all the articles about oh, them. Sure. Okay, like so so my impression was actually completely flipped. I'm the one with the experience, and you're the one with the more scholarly approach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, um, I, can I, I would like this. to check out more VR. It's just that I don't, um, I don't have the money to throw into a headset right now. And uh, I think we have like an HTC Vive demo unit in our office, but I haven't had a chance to check it out. Um, Get yourself some Google Cardboard or something. I do have cardboard, so I've, I've checked out a couple of VR things on my phone. Mm. Uh, like Star Wars app has uh, some some VR things in it, which I, I think are somewhat interesting. They're just like little stories and stuff, but you can look around environments and things like that in them, which um, which is, is kind of neat. Uh, um, so yeah, what what I wanted to talk about regarding VR is. Um, uh, well, maybe not for, for PC. I haven't been into so much the PC games for VR, but as far as the console games from VR that I've been reading a lot about recently, um, the games are still pretty much in an infantile stage. Um, a lot of the games that are VR games right now for consoles are ports of things. Um, some of them have been developed uh, from the ground up for VR, but not very many, and they're not that involved. Um, so, you know, it's the most successful games I've seen and successful meaning that people enjoy playing them in VR are games that you can enjoy that are good games without being able, you know, without needing VR for them mm. is, is what I've noticed from reviews. It's like, oh, this game's really fun. I like it. But you can also play without VR and pretty much have the same experience, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's what I've been noticing a lot recently from, from a lot of console game VR reviews. Um, and I don't think it's a hardware limitation or, um, software limitation at this point. Um, what I personally feel it is, is a creative limitation. I think the technology is new and people aren't thinking about developing games from, from the ground up for this experience. So, um, they're, they're not taking full advantage of the platform yet. Mm. Um, and I'm, you know, hopefully I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, developers that develop things from the ground up for VR, um, and not trying to rush it either for a release. Cause I think uh, a lot of the, the games that have come out for like PlayStation VR, for example, they look a little bit rushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure they were trying to meet the release of the headset things like that. <laughs> so, you know, um, We've got people worked up into a froth over the past four years. You're going to hit this deadline. Right. We're not pushing it back again. We saw what happened to the, the people at uh, Hello Games and No Man's Sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reporters got death threats. We're not pushing this back. No. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm looking. I think there's something here. You know, I think people have been looking forward to this a long time. And um, I'm just a little disappointed with the lack of creativity in developing for it so far. Um, I'm, and I'm also, you know, thinking that some of the genres that they've made games for, for VR may not be kind of the best thing to develop for. Like, Mm. I think, you know, like exploration type games more so than action games are going to be what, Mm. um, is, is most appealing for VR. Putting yourself inside a world and exploring it, I think is, is something that's very appealing. You mentioned No Man's Sky and although it, hasn't had the greatest reception um may not be the best game i think it in a vr environment might be very interesting certainly the concept at least you know just exploring procedurally generated vistas and right looking like examining new creatures in 3d and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no that's a good point right something like um another you know exploration game abzu um might be really interesting in vr you know it's underwater exploration game Mm. uh you know, minimal, minimal gameplay. So you, you're, you'll be really immersed in the world rather than trying to, you know, fuss with controls and things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that only those type of games should be in VR or those will work the best. You know, um, I like action games, you know, myself. Um, but you really have to look at what's suited for VR. You know, what's, what's easy for a user to do in VR. Um, instead of trying to port everything over and, and kind of like trying to make it work yeah, instead not- of building, building it so that it works naturally, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, <clears throat> it's the same game, but now it's in 3D. Why don't I just right. put on the glasses and get a 3D TV instead of spending twice as much to get something that hurts my head? Right. <laughs> and we all, well, you know, 3D for games is pretty much dead. We all saw how that yeah. went. So, you know, I, it's just, you know, I hope developers, um, Oh, come on, man. You got the power gloves and your red blue, uh, 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 glasses and playing Rad Racer. Dude, that's the best. Right. (laughs) Um, so I'm interested to see where VR goes, but I think, you know, as far, in my opinion so far, I think VR development has been a little lazy Mm -hmm. and, and not the most creative. I think, um, I hope that, uh, independent, independent developers, you know, developing games for it is um, not so costly for them that they'll be able to do it. 
um, because I'm really curious to see what, you know, in develop, independent developers are going to come up with for VR. I think that's where we're going to get more of the, the creative ideas. Um, whereas, you know, uh, larger developers and publishers are going to try to play it a little more safe. Hmm. But yeah. I, the, uh, what you were saying there, uh, uh, resonates with me. I, th- I, th- I think you're, you're really onto something because I think at the moment we, we are just, uh, we have to, VR presents us with like a whole new language of interaction mm-hmm. with the game and we don't have rules for it yet. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you, how do you do this when you have a new medium? I mean, video games are, are the medium, but you can present it in different ways. You have mobile, handheld, console, PC, and now VR. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, I'm going to get a little philosophical here, but a little bit like how, you know, a new genre debuts. I mean, you know, how long, again, how long were they Doom clones before FPS was its own thing? How long were they Street Fighter clones or Street Fighter games before, you know, fighting games were their, their own thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how far does one medium have to, uh, diverge from its parent before it's a new thing? And I'm looking at VR here, considering what you're saying, and it makes me think of, well, what were the first movies? The first movies were kind of like really elaborate stage productions that were captured on film. Mm-hmm. So what are our first VR experiences? Well, they're a lot like just the other games that we have, but in 3D and maybe with some other stuff. And that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily work the best. I mean, it's just a cut and paste job, you might say. Mm-hmm. But as we get experience with it, we more people try it and give feedback. You know, I like people like this. People don't like that. And, you know, really the main feedback that you're going to get from the public is how much money people are spending on it. Um, we'll figure stuff out. We'll have, you know, we'll figure out rules like how fast should we let the player's body move in space before this is going to cause motion sickness for example, mm-hmm. or should we never have the player's body move without the player telling it to move? Perhaps, you know, uh, you put it on, uh, you put something on screen, you, there, there are some guidelines about, you know, where things should be framed, how much of a picture should something be taking up, how much depth of focus you can have on things. VR has the same sorts of questions that we're going to have to figure out. And I think that, you know, one option being exploring games, I think that's a really, really intriguing idea. Or um, narrative games I, or, or walking simulators or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call them, you know. That'd be great, too. You know, you just walk around, you're looking around. I mean, I would say, oh, I was not able to remember the name of the game in time. There's a, There's another sort of just walking game. Um, that you can go around this, this weird landscape and, and stuff happens. There's no combat or anything. All you do is walk. Um, but it's, and I was, the feel for that game would be great for this idea of just having 3D and being able to look around and stuff. But the presentation of that particular game doesn't work because it's like this really low res, very, very low res, almost Atari 2600 looking thing. <laughs> I almost want to say Morpheus, but I know that's not right, but. There was an interesting game that came out recently. It was like a mist style game. You're on this uh world or something and or in this area and you have to figure out a bunch of puzzles. Yeah. Um I, I forgot like, what the game is called, but um something like that would be pretty interesting for VR. Yeah. It, it's 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 not about 
uh, action. It's mm-hmm. about immersion. Mm-hmm. And that, that's intriguing to me. Or, you know, okay. puzzles in VR, puzzles in 3D space. Mm-hmm. Th- that has very interesting possibilities. The idea that one, the developer no longer controls the angle at which the player is viewing something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that presents certain challenges. I mean, you and I have both seen this plenty and, and some, uh, audience members have probably seen something like this where you have an item in the world that you're not actually meant to see it from the back. So it doesn't actually have a texture behind it. Yep. And then you can see <laughs> through it. You know, you're not allowed to get away with that anymore. You have to texture everything because, mm-hmm. you know, a player can just you know, stick their head around it and see. Um, that sort of consideration when it comes to puzzles. You, 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 the developer will surrender the control of forcing the player into a certain thing, but that frees up certain other puzzle elements. Like, oh, there's a, there's a plaque telling me what's in the door and there's, I need a key, but I don't know where the key is. The key is actually strapped on the, on the underside of the plaque. You know, you can mm-hmm. just like, if, if you can't move your head around freely, you wouldn't be able to find that. But in a VR space, yeah, you could. Mm-hmm. Or something like old games like Deja Vu or The Uninvited, those weird sort of uh, uh, narrative puzzle uh, – ah, God, I don't even know what you'd call them. Uh, this this old sort of almost pen and paper style uh, collecting items and trying to figure out puzzles kind of game. Um, those – that, that – concept of a game would be interesting in VR as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I do think one of the things that we'll have to learn is just how much players are willing to get thrown about because the whole motion sickness thing is, is a real problem. It feels very strange and it can, it can mess with you. Um, but if the player is always in control of their own motion, it's not as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this stuff, these, these are all going to be rules that we're going to have to learn a, as we move forward with all of this. Right. Um, you know, I was thinking about games I mentioned, you know, like uh, Abzu or um, other, you know, free roaming games that would be interesting uh, to, to see. Um, one game that I thought would be interesting as well, uh, although it might be a little bit jarring for people, would be like something like Shadow of the Colossus. Oh, where you're, you oh, know, man. you're roaming around the world and then you come up on one of the classes and you, you know, you can look up and see how huge it is. And then, you know, experience climbing on top of it and being on it and, you know, trying to hit it for certain places, something like that. Something like that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, but that, that's another thing. You, like you, you, people that, sick. So. Yeah. You couldn't have an exact port of Shadow of the Colossus. Right. Right. Um, but you can have something like that. You can use VR to give you a sense of scale. Mm-hmm. That's something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was, there was one sort of development piece I saw talking about, uh, you know, working, tr- trying to figure out some rules for VR because while we don't have anything established yet, developers are already trying to figure things out. Like in VR, everything has to happen in 3D space. You can't just have a text thing on the screen just at some default thing. Everything has to happen at some distance from your eyes. There is no default. So if you're going to have a text menu, it has to be some distance from your eyes. Mm. Where's a good distance? What's a comfortable distance to focus on? People have to figure this stuff out. Or um, 
one one thing that I, I kind of consider as I'm doing this when I when when I played Eve uh, Valkyrie, uh, one of the things I really quickly noticed was because that's a dogfighting game. One of the things I realized was, hey, I you know when you're playing a dogfighting game, you get those little arrows to show you what direction your the opponent is from mm-hmm. where you're facing, and I realized, hey, I can just turn my head and look <laughs> at it. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, now I see how far away from me he is. Should I keep spinning around to try to get at him, or should I go for some other guy? You know, because mm-hmm. you know the, the the feedback is different. Um, yeah. The another example from Eve is, you know, if you're looking around, the like I mentioned, the 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 developer has to surrender having control of what the player is looking at, mm-hmm. which in turn means you can't have, at least not in the same way, you can't have big set pieces. You can't have, like, this huge carrier warping in mm-hmm. and be this massive, impressive thing that you're seeing because the player might be looking somewhere else yeah. and just completely <laughs> miss the thing that happened. Right. You, you can't force them to look at stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like in set pieces in a Call of Duty game or something, it's, uh, you, you, you trigger a sequence and all of a sudden you're not controlling where you're looking. And mm-hmm. the camera just pans over to show you this building collapsing because mm-hmm. stuff is happening and you want to see it. I mean, some of that might be solvable with good audio, good enough stereo audio that it'll kind of give you, uh, even in three dimensions, a sense of where something's happening from and give you a cue that you need to look that way but Mm -hmm. all of this stuff is going to be tricky to figure out the best way to present this stuff and what tools can be retained what tools need to be abandoned and new tools that need to be developed to be presented in vr Mm -hmm. i think uh i think it was the last halo game that came out um they actually had uh you know as you were playing there were those big sequences and the set pieces and everything but they didn't actually force you to look at them it would have a button prompt, and if you pressed it, you would look that way automatically. Uh-huh. Um, something like that could be done. But again, I mean, there's still a chance of somebody not looking because sometimes I didn't look; I was shooting stuff, right? <laughs> so I couldn't look over and see this thing happening. Um, you know. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's it's interesting. I think there's there's ways to get around some of that stuff. It's just that, like I said, people and you know, developers and designers are going to have to be a lot more creative uh, with what they do, and it's it's a whole new it's a whole new world basically for development. Um, and people, like you said, they need to rewrite all the rules for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping they actually do instead of, you know, kind of taking a lazy route with it. Yeah. Um, cause the, I think in the same sort of way, you can't just take uh, Mario brothers and put slap a virtual D pad on it and put it on mobile. You can't mm-hmm. just slap stuff into VR. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there's there's so much potential here. Um, with 3D, I wasn't really sure. I didn't really think it was going to be that big, and you know, um, it, it ended up really not being huge for for gaming. But virtual virtual reality, I think, is something that where there's so much more potential. Um, I'm really looking forward to people taking advantage of it. Hmm. Yeah, there there's the whole physical comfort thing is also a pretty significant barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played with the, the PlayStation VR headset and that mm-hmm. one, <coughs> pardon me, 
that one I think actually I th- I think one of the things that makes it uncomfortable for me is actually the size of it mm-hmm. because I have I've got a pretty large skull like the my hat size is large mm-hmm. um <laughs> so when I put the thing on it's got like a pre uh, a molded uh cap you might say the 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 forward brow section is a solid piece of plastic and there's there's padding on it but the edges of it dig right into my temples i mm. mean and when i say dig i mean like i said there's padding there it's still padded but the padding there pushes a lot harder and you can't you can't stretch it open to rest comfortably on your temples your temples are kind of sensitive Mm-hmm. So I, I fear that this particular model will I, – I'm going to cap out at a half hour most and then have to take a couple days off. Oh, wow. Okay. Because because on top of that, there's just the whole motion sickness thing and there – you know. Yeah. yeah. If, if it, that's a real thing, you know. Is you, your eyes are telling you that you're moving and your physical sense – and your inner ears, like nothing else is telling you that you're moving, but this image that you're moving is filling your entire field of vision. That means the senses coming into your brain are conflicting, which in a basic natural sense usually means you've been poisoned That because your senses are disagreeing with each other. And when you've been poisoned, what does your body want to do? It wants to get rid of the poison. So chances are you ingested it, so you puke. Mm-hmm. That's what motion, that's one of the big things for motion sickness. And that's mm-hmm. probably one of the things that, that gives you motion sickness in roller coasters just because you're getting so much information going on that, that you can't really follow it. Your inner ear has been, uh, uh, looped around so much and jostled so much you can't tell what's what anymore. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, well, we've got gibberish here and information there. Well, gibberish and information aren't the same thing. So upchuck it. <laughs> Um, that's why I, I wonder if the solution might be that there should be limits on how much, if at all, the game moves the player for them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in Rush of Blood, there's a segment where you're kind of doing this roller coaster thing and you do this big drop. And that one was enough to kind of make me feel weird. Or in, um, Eve Valkyrie, uh, the fighting, the, 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 um, dog space fighter game, mm-hmm. uh, just doing roles in that messes with me. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it can, it can really be rough, but something much simpler, more predictable. I played, uh, Res and that one, because you're pretty much always going one direction. Mm-hmm. It's much more manageable it it doesn't it doesn't affect that sort of inner ear rest of the body disconnect as much right but uh res is also definitely one of those games that was kind of just slapped into vr because at least as far as i got in the demo because the only vr aspect that was really any significant to me mm-hmm. was in one sequence i had to turn around and look behind me because the opponent was now behind me and i could still you know hit it there. Mm. Okay. I mean it's it's kind of interesting but you know it, how how important or useful or immersive or engaging is that? Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um 
really quick, one other thing that I've I've seen that's been pretty cool in VR is um, VR spectator modes. Mm. Uh, Dota 2 specifically has like a pretty awesome spectator mode where you can, before the game, you can look at all the heroes and you know, full you know 3D. You can walk around, you can look at them, you can see. Then you can see the map. You can put yourself on the map. Um, into the match so you can actually be on the battlefield where the characters are playing, stuff like that. Um, and then have them scale, you can scale it up or down so they can be life size, like right next to you. Cool. Um, things like that. Um, I think that's something that's also, uh, pretty interesting for VR, uh, not just for, you know, the players of games, but for spectators of games. Yeah. You know, no. say you're, you're playing a, there's a fighting game tournament. And uh, you can, you know, spectate in and be like right in front of them or right next to them while the, the characters are fighting. That would be something that would be pretty awesome, uh, you know. So I think that's that's another avenue for developers to explore with VR is not just playing the game, but watching the game could also be no, pretty interesting as that's, well. That's true. Every time, <coughs> you know, esports in general. Every time I look at those, I'm like, man, I cannot wait for this to be presented in a way that I can get invested in it. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, check out if you haven't seen Dota 2's uh, VR spectator mode. Check it out; um, it's it's pretty cool looking. Mm. Yeah, and and sort of if you had let's just say Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can spectate in Street Fighter. It's in 3D, so you could put a camera in there. I mean, granted, you know, half the arena is just going to be blank, nothing. Right. But uh, <laughs> because that's the side the camera is usually on, but it is 3D. You can put the camera wherever you want. So mm-hmm. you could have a replay, you could slow it down and just watch frame by frame and move your head around and just watch everything that's happening close up if you wanted to. You yeah. could uh, walk around a, a, a CSGO map as things are going on or, mm-hmm. or fly around or get a bird's eye view because this is something that I talked about with uh, with DJ when he was on when we were talking about esports, just mm. having that sort of replay and presentation and, uh, uh, you know, really, really good spectator mode kind of stuff. Right. Uh, no, that's a very, very cool, uh, possibility for use of VR. Mm. That's, that's, that's a really cool point. I'd be interested to see some more of that. See what I can do. Yeah, me too. I, I hope, you know, other companies pick up on it and expand it as well. Cause I, I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, coming from someone, you know, that I, I watch a lot of games, you know, um, in addition to playing them. So, you know, being able to watch them and be more immersed in it would, would be really interesting to me. Hmm. All right. Then, then, then we could also get a, a 3D replay and apparently watch, uh, uh, South Korea just completely obliterate Russia in the Overwatch finals. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched that yet. I read about it though. Yeah, me too. Uh, the 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 article I saw the the video link was dead when I got to it. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I I got a problem. I got several problems with esports. One of them is that whole presentation thing. It's not necessarily the most approachable thing for me. Yeah. Um, the sportscasters. Or shout or whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. In any case, the, the, the play by play guys don't necessarily bring you into it. It's almost, most examples that I've seen don't explain it to the lay person. You have to be practically a competitive level person to be able to follow it or aspiring competitive level person or have followed a lot of it. Not necessarily That's all true. of them, but most of the ones that I actually catch are like that, which as someone who wants to watch this, but 
I don't want to have to study a bunch to be able to get into it. Mm-hmm. It it puts me off, you know. Mm-hmm. I uh, can see that. I think commentary is helping. Um, you know, it's 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 been improving, and I think it 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 can hurt help certain people. Um, like you mentioned, you know, somebody that's you know competitive or aspiring to be competitive, it definitely helps them. But like you're right for for somebody that just wants to watch it and enjoy it they're probably not going to know half the things the commentator's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so even that doesn't bring them in. But it's, it's hard because you want to appeal to both, right? Yeah. You want to appeal to the people that are watching it because it's competitive. So you want to give the extra information uh, about what's going on. But then, yeah, you're right. For the casual person that's just watching it, um, they're not going to know what, what you're talking about anyway. So it's, yeah. it's pretty tough. I mean, outside yeah, I'm not, of having, I'm not saying it's easy because, yeah. you know, uh, uh, other sports are going to be limited by how fast your body can move and people can talk maybe not as fast, but enough to give people an idea of what's going on. Uh, games are going to be as fast as your fingers can move and that can, that can very much outpace your mouth. Right. Especially when, uh, you know, it's a, a multiplayer competitive game and you've got five characters to watch and commentate on and five characters yeah. on the other side, you know, that's, that's tough. Um, yeah. It would be interesting if they had maybe like dual commentary where you could switch between casual and <laughs> like that. But then, you know, that's <laughs> you're giving that's me visions of the Spanish announce table. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, that's that's another cost to the uh, the promoter, whoever is, you know, paying yeah. for that. Well, so, I mean, but if, if you could do that, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's people out there who would probably be interested in watching some of this stuff enough to make it worthwhile. And they've been able to put forth a, a apparently reasonably successful business model based on uh, more of a catering to the hardcore. So I, I think mm-hmm. there's room for that. The, mm-hmm. the expense should be um, worthwhile after an initial investment. The trick is, of course, finding someone who is so knowledgeable and so good on the mic that they can make things approachable for a casual audience while being, you know, engaging and entertaining. Yeah. That's yep. the hard part that I it's see. It's difficult. It's difficult. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you can find those people out there. I think uh, a lot of companies have, have found a, a couple that they, they really like to work with. Um, and uh, they've been using them a lot more. Um, but it, it is difficult. Uh, and a lot of people that are that knowledgeable aren't going to want to do it because they'd rather be playing, you know? <laughs> so, maybe, you maybe, know. maybe we'll wind up with, uh, Major League Gaming being hosted by Mike Goldberg. <laughs> Coming up next. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's what we need, right? We need the, the guy that's knowledgeable, the Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy that's there for, you know, the fluff. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike and, Goldberg. Cause Joe Rogan. You know, there can be plenty of uh, uh, comments for him, good and bad, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, he does know enough to, to be insightful, at least, at the very least, at times. And Joe Rogan and, and uh, Mike Goldberg is the one who keeps the pace of the show going. Right. As opposed to, like, Dominic Cruz, super, super knowledgeable, mm-hmm. not necessarily the best caster, because mm-hmm. he'll, like, just keep going on. You know, technical details that don't necessarily fit the flow of the fight in terms of right. broadcasting. He'll talk over other broadcasters and, and so forth. So that, you know, I love the information that Dominic Cruz can put out, but 
I'm also, we're also just going way off of the topic of VR and now we're halfway into MMA. So, well, <laughs> that's maybe not a bad idea that you just kind of brought up though, is like maybe having one guy that's there for all the technical stuff and one guy that's there just for flavor commentary. Yeah. And then, you know, you have the, the flavor commentary guy talk and then, um, <laughs> and then, and so, then the so technical you, guy explains it, you know, or, or something like that. And or if that you have help. one of those, you can you can have everything designed to be, you know, multiplayer games have multiple announcers. You got like one announcer following each player, and it's made to be replayed and rewatched. Hmm. And every time you rewatch it, you're you can listen to a different commentator. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you know, sometimes it replays. You can switch between or you know who you're watching and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. A lot of ideas there. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think we've uh, we've thoroughly exhausted our VR talks, considering we completely veered into esports, which I didn't <laughs> even have in mind. But uh, it, it is something I, I, I do very much want to see take off and be digestible to me. I want to be able to follow it. Mm-hmm. I just it's it's not presented in a way that that works for me. Mm-hmm. And now. We come to our War Stories segment. Uh, that little chuckle that indicates to me you probably weren't thinking about this ahead of time. Yeah, you're right. I was <laughs> about this part. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, maybe I should redub it Surprise War Stories because everyone forgets about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I well, guess I, I, can, I can just pick something out of the air real quick. Sure. If you want. Um you know, let's talk about, I, I got an interesting topic real quick. Um, let's talk about management and right. how manage, management is generally, you know, the one thing that can affect turnover the most at a company. W- would you agree with that? Um, quite probably considering most other things that can drive turnover can be mitigated by management. Right. Okay. So, um, where I'm working right now, there's been quite a lot of turnover, um, in, in a particular department. And I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not, I'm not blaming the manager right now. Um, that's not what I'm getting at. Um, but we've had about, let me see, one, two, three, seven people leave over the last year or so in the same department. Um, so, you know, HR is, is now seeing a huge trend here and getting involved and talking to direct reports of the manager and everything like that. It's, uh, it's been, you know, um, interesting to say mm-hmm. at least at work recently. Um, but I believe this manager recently went to a management training class and the person there at the class was saying, you know, like the number one reason why most people leave a company is because of their manager. Hmm. You know, it could be a number of other things as well, but like you said, it's, there are things that the manager can control, um, or at least help with and help mitigate. Yeah. To keep their employee, you know, happy and satisfied and, and, you know, at the company. Um, and it was interesting that, um, this, this particular, I heard from someone else that was there that this particular manager and someone else were, were disagreeing with it. Um, <laughs> so it, it's kind of just goes to show that, you know, they're, they're not thinking about that as well. And, um, if you're a manager out there in the industry, you know, just be aware that, you know, what you do has a huge impact on the employees under you. 
And you're not there to serve their every need, but you are there to look out for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's very to true. Help, to help them grow, um, to keep them, you know, up to date with, with things that are going on, uh, keep them in the loop, um, uh, on things so they're, you know, they're informed, um, so they can do their job well. And, uh, you know, basically just be there for them. But if you're a manager, your employees need you. They're depending on you. You need to be there. You need to support them. Um, or else they will leave you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've had my share of managers that I didn't care for and, uh, I've ended up leaving, uh, because of, you know, um, mm-hmm. Nick knows, <laughs> Nick yeah. knows that. For yes. Sure. Yes, I do. Um, same so, guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's important, uh, and, you know, employees, if you're not happy about your manager, um, you should probably say something and bring it up because, you know, some either go to their boss or HR, um, because most likely if you're having an issue, it's not just an issue for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an issue for your department. Um, so I guess that's my, uh, my management and, uh, employee PSA for the day. <laughs> um, I just pulled that up because it's, it's something that's been happening recently, uh, where I'm at. Uh, so it was on the top of my head. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, yeah. And definitely just to kind of expand on your point of, you know, talk to the, their manager or HR or something is if they're doing something that makes you not want to come to work. Yeah. It's probably affecting other people, making them not want to come to work. Mm-hmm. And, if this is around and nothing's happening about it, it's also a, a possibility that the organization as a, if, if you look at it as a unit or entity may not be aware that this is going on, that this is an issue. Otherwise they'd probably want to do something about it too. That's true. So I you mean, don't want to leave, you don't want to leave stuff like that unsaid. You don't want to leave it till a point where just everybody wants to leave. When yeah. it, it could, th- there could be ways to address it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it took, you know, n- nobody saying anything and seven people to leave before HR got involved and cause they mm-hmm. saw it now and now they're like, Oh, Oh, what's, what's going on? <laughs> you know? Um, I would so. say, I would say that that, um, brings into question what's going on with HR's exit interviews, but you know, yeah, you, you can't be too certain if so, if someone if if everybody was just fabricating reasons why they want to leave because they just didn't want to think about it or deal with it anymore. You know, that's that's their prerogative. Right. And that's uh, something that does happen. I think, oh, yeah. you know, a few people just didn't want to be there. They didn't, they didn't want to. You know, they're they're leaving already. They don't care. Um, so they don't even want to spend their time. Uh, talking to HR about certain things because they're on their way out already, you know. Yeah, they've so completely, and that and that's one of the other things that kind of speaks to uh, an atmosphere. We don't know what 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 these people said to HR. This is just a possibility. Mm-hmm. But if if the atmosphere is so bad that people don't even care about the people who are there after them, mm-hmm. or perhaps they felt singled out to the point that they thought that this didn't affect other people, you know, mm-hmm. that none of that is good in a workplace. Right. Yep. All right, then. I think that's uh, I think that's about it for us for today. Thanks for coming along, Marco. Yeah, thanks for having me again. All right. 
And thanks for joining us this week. If there's uh, anything anybody out there would like to see me write about in the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about here on Behind the Line Radio, you can always drop me a line at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. See you all next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Thank you.